Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we open the Bible now and we think about what you have said there to us, we pray that you would find us to be teachable, responsive to your leadership. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in an earthquake? Ever been in an earthquake? I was, at one moment in my life, I was standing on the eighth floor of Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center in Denver, which is now closed, not Denver, but the medical center, and uh, on the eighth floor, and suddenly, I was about to get into an elevator, and suddenly the building starts doing this. I gotta tell you, it's a little creepy feeling when the building that you're standing in starts to do this. Earthquakes. Um, It was, really wasn't a bad earthquake, as earthquakes go, it was about, 3.2 on the Richter scale, Um, but the Richter scale is not like the bathroom scale, which is, you know, bad enough. The Richter scale is a logarithmic scale. So a 7 is 10 times more powerful than a 6, which is 100 times more powerful than a 5, and 1,000 times more powerful than a 4. So as the scale goes up, we're talking, yikes. In A.D. 614, an earthquake destroyed much of the city of Ephesus, the city that's, uh, na- that the Bible book that we're going through for a couple, three weeks is named for. Now, I don't know about you, but I have found that in our day and time, the word awesome has been slightly overused. Awesome. I mean, you know... Ice cream is ice cream. It's not awesome. It's, it's, it's ice cream. But earthquake kind of power is actually awesome. The word means that it should inspire awe. And an earthquake has done that for us when we were living in Oklahoma. Uh, one morning we were awoken by, uh, awakened by a vibrating house, which, you know, vibrated right on time for us to get up in the morning, but it was not our alarm. It was a, you know, earthquake. Awesome. But in the passage we're going to examine this morning, if we can get our heads around this, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about a power that eclipses earthquake power. Now, I don't think you and I really believe this, but the Apostle Paul is going to remind us about the power of prayer. So listen with me. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. If you're following along in the pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1818. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this. For this reason, and we'll talk about that phrase in just a minute. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power, listen, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand 
of the heavenly realms. Now I said we'd stop for a minute and consider that phrase, for this reason that begins this passage. When you see a phrase like that, or the word therefore in our English Bibles, those words are like rear view mirrors. They are reflecting back to what has come that has preceded what we're about to uncover. So last time when we talked about laying the foundation for a community of grace, we heard the Apostle Paul say that we are chosen by God because of his grace and his love. We heard him say that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed for a purpose, for the glory of God, and that we should act like agents of grace because we have ourselves been the recipient of what the hymn writer called amazing grace. So pondering those great truths as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit moves Paul to this passage that I just read to you, which really is the record of him praying on behalf of the people in the church at Ephesus. Paul has stuff in this passage, if we unpack it just a little bit, that can knock our socks off. Now, please don't take your socks off this morning. But the potential here is that you and I can experience the depth of the power of God through prayer. Now, you and I, you and I, let me just speak for myself at this moment. I don't live like I believe this to be true. But we can experience the power of God through prayer. So there's a few things I want to pull out of this passage this morning for us. And the first one is that one of the things I like about the Apostle Paul, the record we have of what he has said in the Bible, is that he practices what he preaches. He's consistent in who he is. And he's consistent about this notion of praying for people. In fact, if we go to other letters in the New Testament that Paul authored, we hear him say things like, he prayed continuously. He gave thanks in all circumstances. One time, he says, I give thanks for all things. Think about that. Think about the latest trial or difficulty that has come your way or come my way. Think about in the middle of it, giving thanks for it. And Paul does that because he knows that God is at work, book of Romans. That he works all things together for the good that love him and are called to according to his purpose. So here Paul is practicing what he preaches, and he gives thanks for the believers. He mentions them. He brings their name before God. See, when Paul prays, it's none of this namby-pamby, unthought, oh, bless all the missionaries. It's not this casual, I'll pray for you. When he prays, He prays powerfully, and he prays specifically. And in this passage, he prays for his friends in the church at Ephesus. And by extension, because it's in the word of God, he prays for us. And look what he wanted for them. And what he wants for us this morning. He asks in verse 17 that God will give us wisdom and understanding. In my life, in my experience, in my 35 years of life, I have had the opportunity to know many, 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 many really smart people. But the number of wise people that I've known, it's a way smaller number. And I mean wisdom to understand that the things of God, that wisdom comes from God. 
And that's what Paul is asking for these folks this morning. And he's asking it for us. God has given us his word. He's given us teachers. And he himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, comes to illuminate the truths of God's word for us. And this wisdom that we can acquire is knowledge and wisdom for a purpose. It's not just the accumulation of info. Every time we encounter the word knowledge in the scriptures, whether it's the Old Testament word, the verb is yada, to know. The New Testament verb is ginosko, to know. Wherever we see it, those words have packed into them knowledge for a purpose. It's not just accumulation of information. Knowledge for a purpose. And the primary purpose here is to to know him better in in a full and complete way by participating, by immersing ourselves in his knowledge. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I treat God as if he is some distant, faintly recalled Facebook friend who I only really think about when a birthday notice pops up on my news feed. Oh, right. I know that person. They're my friend. But Paul says about God that we can know him better. And not only can we know him better, we we should know him on a deeper and deeper and deeper level. But Paul doesn't stop there in his prayer request. He, in verse 18, he wants the eyes of our hearts to be open so that we can clearly see all the grand things that God has in store for us. Now, when we hear the word heart, we think primarily of emotions. It usually means how we feel about something. But here, in the Bible, when we hear the word heart, the Bible writers are talking about this kind of central residence, residence excuse me, uh, of full comprehension. It's our mind coupled with attitude, coupled with yes, emotions. All of those things put together who make us who we are and motivate us to do what we do. And so when Paul talks about the eyes of the heart, he's hoping that the the deepest part of us will seek the deepest part of God and that our eyes would be opened. When I lived in Colorado, a couple of times I went to the Cave of the Winds, which is outside Colorado Springs. And you do a little tour through there, and it's really kind of an interesting little... Uh, operation, and you get to the middle of the tour, kind of this open cavern, which of course has been illuminated uh, by you know electric lights. And you get there, and the tour guide shuts off all the lights. And you have never experienced darkness until you've been in the middle of a cave when they turn out the lights. In fact, I had a good friend who, in the military at the time who had gone on that similar tour, and he, he was on this tour, and they got to the place where they turned off the lights, and suddenly he feels a hand rubbing up and down his back, and he thought, well, it's my wife just, you know, wanting to be assured that she was safe when it was dark, and then they turned the lights back on, and it was some young lady who was from Japan on a tour who had reached out to him, thinking that he was her husband, and started rubbing his back. Oftentimes, you and I are living our lives as if we are walking through the cave of the winds with the lights off. And Paul here says he wants our eyes to be opened. He wants us to be illuminated by the power of the scriptures to speak to us about who we are and who God wants us to be. 
He wants us to know, for example, the hope to which God has called us in Christ. This is not some vague, wishy-washy, hope it stops raining. This hope is a guarantee. It rests on what we saw last week about the, the sealing work of God and the deposit of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who believe in Jesus. This is, this is true hope. Now, this is not our, our hope things work out exactly the way we, I want them kind of hope. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a hope that rests securely in the purpose and work of Jesus. Because if you have no hope this morning, you can find it in Christ. If you are in Christ, you can live in hope and not despair. And if you are in Christ, you can share that hope. We heard this morning during our prayer time, categories of people that are struggling with depression and despair and anxiety, who are struggling with lack of employment, who are struggling with addiction to to life-sapping substances. Pastor Laura and I were remarking to each other just yesterday about the recent information that's in the news about the fact that if you inhale vaped, vaporized smoke, it might be bad for you. Well, duh! But this hope that we have in Christ is not a vapor that disperses and vanishes. It's it's a real thing. And if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you and I, we have the opportunity to share that hope with others. It's not a magic wand. It's not a snap our fingers. It's not a click our heels together three times and be back in Kansas kind of hope. It's a hope that rests in the purposes of God, in a world that's broken, in a world where people hurt, in a world where they need us to be agents of care and concern so that we can share the riches of his inheritance, the Apostle Paul says. Now, there are kind of two aspects of this. God looks on his people as a treasure. Now, I want you to turn and look at your neighbor to your left or your right. doesn't matter. Look at your neighbor and say, wow, that's God's treasure. Some of you are not convinced. Some of you said, wow, that, that's God's treasure. <laughs> or you may have thought, if that's God's treasure, we're in big, big trouble. <laughs> but it's true. We're limited by looking at the outward appearance. We don't, we don't have the, the capacity God does to, to look inside the hearts and minds of people that he has created in his own image and on whom he rests his love and care and concern and about whom he says, this is my treasure. This is my treasure. Everybody you know, even the grumble stillskins in your lives, everybody you know is God's treasure. They may not know it, 
But we know it. We should treat them like it. We share this capacity to treasure what God treasures. And we get the capacity to share in the riches of Christ, Paul says. Now, again, our brains go riches, money, stuff, yay. But that's not what he's talking about here. Those kinds of riches, sure, they're fine. It's nice to have a hefty amount of money in your bank account. That's great. It's nice to have more, you know, month or more money than month at the end of the month each month. It's nice. If there's a couple dollars still left there, that's okay. But that's where our brains go when we hear this word riches. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about real, actual, no kidding. He's serious about it, kind of riches. He's talking about, of course, first of all, salvation in Jesus. That's our rich. That's priceless. How do we know? Look at the cross. That's how we know. He's talking about the richness of fellowship with other believers. All those people you looked at just a moment ago and were skeptical about whether they were a treasure of God or not, God has packed into that relational capacity this power of fellowship. It's an amazing thing. It's been amazing to me in, in, in my own life to have uh, these kinds of spirit and soul bonding relationships around the person of Jesus that can survive fractures. We have very, very good friends in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Why they still live there is only because they have grandchildren there. They're very good friends. Deep-seated, bestest, bestest kind of buddies. But there was a moment in our lives when that relationship was on the verge of rupture and fracture. But we knew that that relationship was important. And so we pursued restoration of that relationship. And they were good and gracious to forgive. But that's what can happen in the body of Christ. There's an old song that says, you will know that we say, you will you notice that we say brother and sister around here. Well, we don't do that much here, but it's true. In the body of Christ, it's true. And in verse 19, Paul talks about the greatness of God's power. And look, he uses every superlative, even synonym he can come up with. Incomparable, great, mighty, strong, Mary Poppins would say, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. If you took a trip to Boston, you might hear somebody say, it's wicked powerful. Book of Job, chapter 26, verses 7 through 11. He, God, spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake aghast at his rebuke. That's power. 
And that's the kind of power that Paul wants his people to see, these folks in Ephesus, and he wants us to see the actual, no kidding, real life, don't mess with it kind of power. We talked a few moments ago in our prayer time about the hurricane victims in, in Bermuda, Hurricane Dorian. 185-mile-hour winds settled over one of the little islands adjacent to Bermuda and stayed there for two days. Literally, actually, no kidding, swamped much of the land. I mean, you've seen the pictures, right? The overflights that they've taken in those news pictures. It's just flat. Now, I've seen the devastation, and you have too, likely, of a tornado that comes through, right? And there's this path, there's this very discernible path of destruction, and all around it is things are okay, and you wonder, well, man, it just took this stuff out, but everything else is okay. That's not the way it happens in a hurricane. Everything got flattened. In 1965, when my dad was in the military, we were stationed, he was stationed, we were there with him at, uh, in, at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And we were there when Hurricane Betsy rolled through. We stayed with some folks in their base housing because the base housing was theoretically secure from that kind of uh, uh, devastation. And uh, we were living in a mobile home at the time, in a mobile home park, a trailer park. So we went back after the hurricane was over. Our place was basically okay, but the trailer adjacent to us was standing up on its end like this. We went down to the beach, and there was a hotel on the beachfront that used to be there, but just wasn't there. It was as as if it had never been there. Hurricane power. May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington blew up. 8.32 a.m. An explosion ripped, get this, 1,300 feet off the top of the mountain. Later they estimated that it was the equivalent of 10 million tons of TNT. The equivalent of 500 Hiroshima-style nuclear explosions. A 300-degree heat blast traveled 200 miles per hour, knocking down everything in its path. 3.2 billion board feet of lumber were destroyed, enough to build 200,000 three-bedroom homes. That's power. That's power. But compared to the power of God, Paul says, those kinds of power are a whisper. And in the resurrection, which is the power to which Paul points in this passage, in the resurrection, God shouts his power. And he wants to shout that power into our lives. Not power for selfish indulgence, but power to endure and triumph. Paul uh, says that God points to the empty tomb, and he says, I want to work that kind of power into your life. They're coming for us. What then is the basic burden of Paul's prayer? His basic burden is that the eyes should have it. Not those voting kind of eyes, but the eyes should have it. 
that we will know who we are in Christ, that we will know the hope and riches available through Christ, that we will experience the shout of God's power at work in our lives. Last fall, I went to the eye doctor to update my glasses prescription. If I take off my glasses, the world is a blur. And frankly, you all look a lot better. (laughs) You know, you go to the eye doctor and you look at those little letters on the chart and they change the letters so that if you can get them right the first time, you can't get them right the second time because it's like cheating. Paul's prayer is that you and I will put on God's prescription. We will put on his view of the world. His view of the troubles and trials of those around us that we care about. His view of those treasures he has that are walking out there on the streets of Emporia right now. I don't know about you, but next to Paul's prayers, my prayers are often feeble things. I get caught up in my own physical circumstances or the crush of things that weigh on me. But today, my prayer for all of us is that our eyes will have it, that we will see and experience God's power at work in our lives. Because hear me clearly. A community of grace is marked by its primary investment in prayer. A community of grace realizes that it is empowered by prayer. A community of grace prays. A community of grace prays for the winsomeness to invite others into the body of Christ. Now here's a thing that I have discovered in my 35 years. I have never, never, ever had an offer to pray for someone refused. Never. I was at the haircut place the other day because I was experiencing bed head and my hair was falling in my eyes and I needed to get it cut. Good job. And they cut it, the young lady cut it, and we got to chatting and she asked what I did and I told her. And uh, she was, of course, a cosmetologist. And I said to her at the end of that, I said, is there anything I can pray about for you? And she just like, shed despair. She said, they've cut back on my hours here because they're contracting the number of hours they have, and if I don't get more hours, I'm going to have to find another job. I won't be able to stay here. And my husband, who's a long-haul truck driver, he hurt his back in an accident, but he can't stop driving. Can you pray for those things for me? Absolutely. I have never, ever, ever had somebody refuse an offer to pray for them. Ever. Even if they think I'm a wackadoodle moron. Which may be close to the truth. Nobody's ever said no when I've offered to pray. The community of grace, it prays. The Apostle Paul says, We pray, recognizing that behind us, it's not us, behind us is the absolute power of God at work in Christ. Pray with me this morning. Father, we talk about praying, we even sing about praying, and sometimes we pray about praying, but we don't pray an awful lot. 
at least not in the persistent, consistent way that you've called us to. And at least in my life, I know I don't pray always with the recognition of the power of God in the the resurrection of Christ behind those prayers. So Lord, as we seek to be a community of grace and invite people into your presence, move us to be people who pray. In Jesus' name, amen.